So there's no question that the Chinese government has been, and, and Huawei officials have been much more blatant in their threats and demands than they were in years past. It is the week of April 13th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Andy Kaiser, former Senior Advisor to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, NSI fellow and recent author of The Race to 5G, Securing the Win, an NSI law and policy paper. Andy is a friend. He's been working on 5G issues for a number of years. While in government, he worked on the bombshell 2012 HIPSI report from Chairman Mike Rogers and Dutch Ruppersberger on the U.S. national security issues posed by Chinese telecommunications companies Huawei and ZTE. This report served as a leading indicator of the potential problems to come. Andy, Thanks for joining us. Nice to be on with you guys. So, Andy, uh, great paper. Uh, came out about a month ago. I think it's worth a read for everyone who is uh, interested in these issues. Also, anyone who's sick to death of coronavirus news. Uh, so I commend it to people's attention. It's on the NSI website. Can you give us uh, some basics on 5G? What is 5G? What does it mean? What are, uh, just at the at the top level, what are some of the issues involved here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Les. So when we talk about 5G, we're referring to fifth generation wireless technology. And that's differentiated by previous generations in a number of ways. So going going back actually uh, in doing some research on this paper with the fine uh, research assistants at, at George Mason's Law School, we uncovered that uh, actually, wireless technology goes back to the to the 1940s in your home state of Illinois in Chicago. Actually, and this was very obviously very uh, early days. It was uh, used used for cars to communicate in a very unsophisticated way. And then over time, over over decades into the really the early 80s is when wireless started taking off in places like Japan uh, and into the Nordic countries, and interestingly enough. And so we sort of stagnated until until that period. And then we saw this this boom where folks, uh, I'm sure you'll remember, I certainly do, folks having the giant bag phone. That's uh, getting more into the into the uh, second generation technology. And folks who had the big antennas on their car and would drive that around. And you couldn't really make any calls because it was so expensive, but it was kind of a cool thing to have. And in a pinch, you had access to that. Well, that all changed, of course, when, when really 3G came along. And this was really, again, in Japan and, and into the Nordic countries. And 3G enabled things like uh, texting. Uh, and then once we got into 4G, we saw this just massive explosion in really what created the mobile internet. So in, in 3G, you had the first, you know, very raw access to the mobile internet, which uh, began the process of, of creating the gig economy that we saw come later in, in the 4G and LTE type technologies where you had enough bandwidth and throughput to create things like Uber, um, and particularly when you had enough uh, enough of that speed and, and reduced latency, which is the time it takes from your device to talk to the network and get information back, you could enable uh, wireless streaming video, and that's when you saw Netflix you know, put Blockbuster out of business and, and really change how 
how folks communicate and how we get access to our information. So the, the 5G is that is that next step, and, and this will be an exponential growth um, from, from 4G to uh, LTE. There was some certainly notable speed increases, but this uh, exponential growth that we intend to see in 5G is as fast as as a hundredfold uh, speed increase, as fast or faster than regular broadband you might have at your office or at home, all enabled wirelessly. So uh, this, you know, the intention of this technology is to enable things like autonomous vehicles, smart cities, telemedicine, and the like, where you you that latency is not just important because you know if you're watching a Netflix movie, you don't want to be interrupted. It could be potentially life or death whether or not your car turns right when it needs to turn right, whether or not the doctor when when he or she you know makes an incision is in the exact right spot with with no delay. So that's the type of technology we're looking at. Less presumably, five G is going to enable us uh, unlock all kinds of amazing opportunities for us technologically and in the economy and otherwise. And it's, and it's a, it's both um, a big challenge for us that we're going to discuss shortly, but it's also a huge opportunity for American business and the American economy, right? No question. No question. And everything from, I mean, you see Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys talking about using 5G technology and, and, and private internet, private uh, networks to enable things like sitting at your seat, at a Cowboys game, maybe placing a bet, ordering your beer, doing your fantasy sports, all enabled by this massive throughput of, of uh, capacity um, to get connected. So I think the, the boundaries are, are limitless. And, you know, mo- most folks watching this realize this will enable things that, that the, the, the two of us on this podcast, you know, can't imagine today, but, but will are likely to, you know, come to fruition in the next few years. So, uh, the whole question of uh, all of the questions that 5G presents policymakers in the U.S. and around the world uh, involves the companies that are involved in developing 5G, implementing 5G, the, the parts and the processes that are involved in this very complex network that is already being rolled out in a bunch of countries, including the United States. Uh, and it and that is what is driving a lot of the public policy concerns. So can you talk a little bit about the individual companies, the private companies or state affiliated companies that are involved in doing 5G work. Absolutely. So the the main interface consumers and business will have when 5G is is rolled out more nationally. Of course, it's already in you know some some 20 cities just in the U.S. on more of a, a limited basis, but uh, folks do have access to it. Um, around the country in, in particular markets. But the primary interface that most people will experience 5G is through their wireless service provider, right? So if you have Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile, you, that will be your experience with, with 5G, that as a service. Now, those companies, of course, to build out this network capacity, use a series of vendors, and the, the market there is pretty limited. And uh, so they they utilize those to build out these these new networks, and they were the companies, of course, who build out past networks. And the primary folks we think about in that environment are uh, Nokia, Ericsson, uh, a new, relatively new player on the scene, Samsung, uh, that Verizon is using to some extent and is being used extensively in South Korea as an end-to-end uh, offering as well. And then, of course, the Chinese uh, uh, state-backed uh, companies that uh, have been 
a point of much discussion at, at NSI and on this podcast, uh, Huawei and ZTE. Uh, Huawei being the much larger player there. Um, of course, both of those have been essentially locked out of the U.S. market since uh, that report you mentioned back in 2012. I think sitting here today, they they have somewhere around 3% market share in the U.S. Uh, but of course, the debate internationally is raging as to what the vendor mix looks like, what's, what's the actual threat, uh, and what decisions should each country make going forward. One of the uh, aspects of 5G, of course, is this incredible bandwidth for computer technology beyond just communications, uh, computer chips, uh, faster processing speeds and all all that kind of thing. So what are what are the security risks and benefits associated with the 5G network in terms of people's personal information and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I'll I'll start with the with the potential benefits. So it's really the first platform, the first development in this these technologies and these this infrastructure of uh, mobile networks that was built with security as as a primary thought. Uh, typically throughout really technology and particularly anything involving the internet, security was sort of given a backseat. It was all about speed and interoperability and, and ease of use and reduction of, of friction to use a Silicon Valley buzzword for the user experience. The 5G really do see security built in from, from day one. Uh, so what those standards look like, various encryption protections, you know, how these will end up being rolled out um, really do have security in mind. And in fact, you know, you certainly can make a, a pretty valid argument that security is mobile security is, is improved if if most of these protocols are, are used uh, more broadly. It's not to say there aren't risks. So uh, one, a primary risk is, is just that speed and throughput you mentioned kind of broadens the aperture for bad guys to do bad things. And then also, Another enabler that we haven't discussed yet that will utilize 5G, of course, is uh, the Internet of Things, which just means lots and lots of new devices being connected to the Internet, right? So, you know, your fridge tells tells you when you're out of milk, and that's all uh, based, you know, on the web. You can control your light switches. You can control your temperature. You really, an uh, autonomous vehicle fits into that, into that concept. I mean, everything is online these days, and that all of those increased devices are a new point at which the bad guys can use to launch an attack, a, a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack. And you do that by having lots and lots of devices requesting uh, information all at the same time pointed at one specific site. And so without proper protections protocols, some of which we discussed, that it's certainly a, a risk that these massive DDoS attacks could be unleashed on the financial sector, government networks, Etc. So something very much to be concerned about. Probably the the biggest concern um, for me and 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 those real security experts uh, technically would be you know as you rely on connectivity, think about where we all are today with the coronavirus response and working from home. If a state actor like the Chinese government or the Russian government were to disrupt our internet connectivity today, it would have a huge impact, of course, on our economy, even more so than pre-coronavirus. So it gives you a sense of, of how reliant we are on this technology. And now imagine all of our cars and you know a, a good chunk of our healthcare uh, relies on, on that connectivity. So just more ways in which the bad guys can create 
economic and actually physical harm potentially. You know, just a personal note here is uh, I have trouble finding things in the refrigerator. I suffer from male refrigerator uh, blindness. And so having a refrigerator that can actually tell me whether something is in there or not in there would be uh, hugely helpful and a cure to my personal disability. Uh, okay, one other uh, question. I actually have a follow-up on that. It's usually, typically, we think of our refrigerators as already working against us. Now, if you imagine, they become a tool of the, the Russian uh, intelligence services. You know, Now, they really could be working against us. I got the uh, the mind reels and uh, probably opens up a whole new genre for, for film and novels and uh, TV series and other things. Let me ask you about one other kind of uh, basic aspect of 5G that maybe not everyone understands, and that's uh, the spectrum. We normally think of spectrum as uh, part of it being devoted to radio, part of it being devoted to broadcast television back when that was a, a bigger deal than it is now, and part of it for uh, cell phone use. What is the state of play in terms of U.S. federal government policy on the spectrum, and how does that matter for what we're trying to do with the with 5G now? Yeah, great question. So yeah, none of this works without the proper spectrum. Uh, so to date, most of 5G in the United States is utilizing something called millimeter wave spectrum, which is which is high band spectrum. It's proven to be very powerful in its throughput. In fact, beating expectations uh, faster than wired uh, broadband, faster than by far any previous uh, mobile networks. So that's the good news. The bad news is millimeter wave doesn't travel very far at all. It doesn't work particularly well in heavily forested areas or even not heavily, just minimally. Um, doesn't always work in the rain, for example. So it's it's can be an important component of a national network. It, it certainly could not be relied on to uh, solely build out a working functional, reliable 5G network. So we were a bit behind the curve on getting what's called mid-band spectrum to market compared to the rest of the world. Mid-band spectrum uh, is what they call the Goldilocks of spectrum, not, not too cold, not too hot, just right. Really works well in the cities, works outstanding in the more rural areas, um, much further distance will it travel from from tower to tower because uh, the alternative if you tried to build out millimeter wave in rural areas think of montana you would need a small cell tower essentially on every equivalent city block which gets you know you could think about that doing that in downtown chicago or, or washington or new york it's gets really hard to think about doing that in you know wyoming so it can be an important part of the mix but certainly can't rely on it and so but that mid-band spectrum this this fcc in particular has been very aggressive with uh, chairman jet pie in in trying to bring as much of that as humanly possible to market the biggest um chunk of that is something called the c-band and that is scheduled to be transitioned from uh satellite carriers uh mainly foreign satellite carriers to be released uh, at an auction later this year, currently scheduled for December. And that would be a huge chunk of this ideal mid-band spectrum that could get into the hands of the telecom companies to uh, really kind of be that really important leg in the stool of, of getting a national 5G network up and running. 
All right, Andy, thanks for that. Uh, let's turn to some of the national security challenges that we're facing on the, in the 5G area. And they seem to be uh, materialized in these two Chinese companies, Huawei and ZTE, both massive companies making big inroads on uh, 5G around the world. What is, what is our, our national security concern with these companies? What is, what is at stake here? Right. So I, I, a lot is at stake, I think, in, in a previous uh, uh, paper for the National Security Institute tried to lay out sort of that, that uh, direct national security threat to, to the United States uh, posed by these two companies. And, and really, I mean, the bottom line is, um, you know, I and, and, and most security um, folks, um, and particularly China watchers, uh, believe that Huawei and ZTE are extensions of, of the Chinese Communist Party uh, China, uh, military and intelligence services, that they are attempting to create a massive collection platform uh, that they could use for their own advantage, including collection of information, disruption of uh, economies, pressure, um, uh, blackmail. I mean, you you go down the list of handing the keys to the kingdom of our you know digital economy of the future to uh, someone you don't trust, and that's what it, it comes down to. The concern there. So, I mean, I think again, I think about what's what, what's happening now in the United States and around the world, relying on telecommunications infrastructure. Imagine if uh, the Communist Chinese Party controlled those, the, the, those pipes, those, the information backbone right now and said, you know what, you either, you need to back off of Taiwan or we're gonna turn off LA and New York, or hey, uh, EU, you need to you know, go easy on, on X, Y, or Z, uh, stop complaining about the World Health Organization and our, and our response or else we're gonna have London go dark for a week. So, I mean, you could just imagine, it doesn't take a, a tinfoil hat to imagine uh, the world that, that could look like if, um, if a hostile um, authoritarian regime like the Chinese were in control of, of the information uh, paths that we all communicate on. So let's talk about our, uh, our friends and allies in Europe. Uh, it seems that our efforts to dissuade uh, European countries from allowing Huawei in particular into their networks have not met with great success. Uh, even our closest ally in Europe, the United Kingdom, looks like they're going to allow Huawei to be part of their network. They say it's going to be peripheral and not part of the, the security aspects of their 5G network. But uh, it's, it's raised alarms here in Washington from folks who are, like us, very skeptical of Huawei and ZTE and what Chinese ambitions are here. We've also uh, had tough luck with our German allies and our Italian allies who, uh, you know, as NATO uh, countries, you would think would be a little closer to us on security issues. What, what's, what's the dynamic in these conversations? Why are we not doing well with our European allies on this question? Yeah, Les, so I, I think it's primarily two reasons. I think the particularly the, the UK reason, has more to do with their own relationship with China uh, than, frankly, with, with anything else. So I do believe every country around the world, you know, in the last 12 months or so, and particularly now with the response of the coronavirus, is, is reevaluating their relationship with China and wondering if, uh, if they want to be closer or further away or somewhere in the middle, um, or if they really want the Chinese government to, to be, you know, increase, have an increasing leadership role in the world when they lock up a million Uyghur Muslims in 
re-education camps when they crack down in Hong Kong and now when they lie and obfuscate on uh, coronavirus as far as its originations, whether or not it could be transferred between humans, uh, not sharing really critical data with uh, international scientists and researchers that would get to a quicker vaccine and quicker therapeutics, certainly in my view, uh, masking their own caseload, deaths, etc. So I think you're seeing all that play in to, to a decision. Now in the, in the UK, this, this decision on Huawei that you mentioned, uh, where they kind of tried to split the baby and say, we're not going to, we're only going to allow Huawei um, into our non-core portion of our network, which um, isn't, is a bit technical, but is not as important a distinction in 5G when a lot of the information and data is shared and pushed out at called the edge away from the core and out at the, the edge where the radios are. So that distinction becomes less important for security reasons. But they they did that in part, in my view, because this was the same year they, of course, withdrew from the European Union. So if you're the UK, you just sort of walked away from your most important trading uh, alliance, not to say they won't continue that trade, but being part of it, certainly. And then do they want to start a tiff with their second or third most important trading ally in the world uh, or not? So I think what the UK was grappling with is what every country is grappling with. Germany is another good example of that really important trading relationship that they have and how do they balance it. The other really important factor that frankly is easy for the United States to to, uh, not factor in is their existing telecommunications infrastructure is in Europe um, and most of these countries about 50% Huawei today. So these networks are built to not be interoperable, essentially. So if you wanted to trade out a Huawei network for an Ericsson network or a Nokia network or a Samsung network, you essentially have to do something called rip and replace that network, which is expensive, time-consuming. And a lot of these, particularly European uh, telecommunications companies, um, are not in a huge hugely strong financial position. Actually, our telcos are are much stronger than the Europeans. And in the US, we don't really have that issue. So uh, Huawei is not embedded in our network. So it's much easier to sort of keep them out. So I think those are those are the real uh, dynamics. And, you know, I might push back a little bit on, we've certainly had mixed results. Um, We've had have had some important successes, I think. Japan has locked out Huawei and ZTE from their networks, which is a hugely critical market for them. The Australians changed positions and did the same. The Kiwis in New Zealand, the Germans are grappling with the decision. The the UK made the decision we discussed, but reportedly is is having some, you know, rethinking the, the dynamic, particularly post-coronavirus. So we'll see. Or potentially, if, uh, if there's some leverage point the US tries to bring uh, to the UK in a future US-UK free trade agreement, for example. And then uh, one more I'll mention that's sort of on the precipice and a really important player to see which way they swing, in my view, would be the would be India. Uh, India always has a complicated relationship with the, with the Chinese. They obviously share, I think, the world's largest border, very significant border. They've gone to war over that border in the not so distant future. Historically untrustworthy relationship that you would think would be primed to sort of take a step a step away from 
from the Chinese. So we'll see where that goes. So uh, I've, I've seen reports that, and I don't know, uh, I, I'd like your take on this. I've seen reports that uh, China has been using assistance, coronavirus assistance as a, as a tool to get countries to adopt Huawei as part of their network. Uh, in other words, as European countries are succumbing to coronavirus, uh, as the U.S. is a little bit after China did, now China may be coming out from under it, uh, depending on how much you believe their statistics. Uh, Europe is is in the thrall of coronavirus infection. They need PPE. They need testing. Uh, China, uh, of course, can help them uh, with provisions of PPE and other things for their medical supply chain. Is it are are these reports true that China may be using that assistance as leverage with countries in Europe and perhaps elsewhere on access to 5G. So there's there's no question that the Chinese government has been and and Huawei officials have been much more blatant in their threats and demands than they were in years past. So they are now they used to kind of pretend that they were just a regular old, you know, mom and pop shop from Shenzhen who made it big and were independent from the government. They weren't beholden to the party. Yeah, we have a couple of party people because that's what you do in China and it's required under the law um, in our C-suite, but for heaven's sakes, we're independent. They've sort of given up that pretense in the last, I'd say, eight to 12 months. Um, So now you're seeing much more, particularly um, the German situation comes to mind where the Chinese government is really blatantly threatening Germany that if they institute a ban or even a soft ban on on Huawei that they will, they, the Chinese government will kick out, will certainly reduce German uh, automaker access to the Chinese market. And there's uh, a big automotive research center um, in China that that has a, a very sizable German component. They've threatened that uh, arrangement going forward. So they're getting much more aggressive in their, in their tactics. Um, I haven't, I, I've seen a, a blip or two about this we're not going to send you masks unless you pick Huawei. The government officials, one example was France. Uh, the, the French embassy said that wasn't true. But, you know, certainly the idea that they're ramping up pressure and more directly conditioning um, their relationship is, is certainly something we're seeing all over the world. Let's talk about what the U.S. government can do overall to respond to uh, this situation where it appears that, you know, we're, we're facing a real challenge in this technological area. We're used to leading the world on technology. Uh, China is now uh, either nipping at our heels or about to pass us on the the race to win this 5G race. So what specific steps can the U.S. government take? One of the ideas that was floated, I think it was by the Trump administration, is that the U.S. government could take an ownership stake in Ericsson or Nokia and essentially lock out Huawei from uh, from completely from U.S. markets and get more leverage to do so in, in Europe. Is that is that a possible solution? So, I mean, you know, we're, we're both Republicans and, and probably generally uh, predisposed to think it's not a great idea for governments to um, take equity stakes of private companies. So uh, my view on that really holds. Number one, I don't think it's necessary. Number two, I don't think we're particularly good at it. It you know, imagine like the treasury secretary being on Nokia's board or something or Ericsson's board. Um, it just doesn't seem like the way we operate and, and probably would end up screwing things up 
uh, more than, than we intend. But there are things that, that we can do. One of the recommendations in my paper, actually, um, that I've give, tried to give a lot of thought to and, and talk to a lot, of, a lot of experts on the Hill and in the administration would be to ex- essentially extend the U.S. defense industrial base. So, you know, after World War II, the Congress uh, passed the Defense Production Act that's gotten a lot of media attention in recent weeks around the idea of the federal government managing the supply chain on medical supplies. But the reason that was instituted after the war was essentially to ensure the U.S. maintained some of these production lines. So you imagine after World War II, you know, all of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines come home. We start to downsize, rightly so, the military. We don't need as many tanks. We don't need as many planes. But my goodness, we better make sure we maintain that production line to make a plane or a tank or a submarine or a carrier as a deterrent. And then obviously, if we ever get into a conflict, we need to have those those assembly lines open. So an example that, that one could cite would be uh, the U.S. has one uh, production line that makes the M1A1 Abrams tank. So the, the tank the Army uses to this day around the world. Um, There's one place it's made. It's in Lima, Ohio. And in the last um, 20 years, the good news for that production line is there's been plenty of need with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But if in 10 years there is no war, there's no uh, need for it, that plant will continue to produce tanks, whether or not the Army really needs them or not. And the government will maintain a baseline of orders via constant assessment of the supply chain, the viability of those production lines. Um, And if they're ever out of whack, the government actually has a lot of options. They can offer loans. They can, uh, again, order things like tanks and just park them somewhere uh, not to be used, but to keep those those lines rolling. Um, so one of the things I'm proposing is, is perhaps we extend that over uh, the telecommunications uh, infrastructure companies to do the same thing, to make sure that there's a Western alternative to a Chinese one. And you could do that in the same way via loans, making, you know, doing an assessment of, of the supply chain, making sure the production capabilities are um, you know, uh, are where they need to be, making orders to keep them afloat, et cetera. So a number of options to ensure, because, you know, a, a fear of, of a lot of us who watch this is the, the trajectory that Huawei particularly was on was one that was going to put out of business all of their Western competitors. And if we got to a place in the world where there was only one choice and you could only buy this infrastructure from our primary geopolitical competitor, don't think that would be a good spot for the world. So um, just one option of, of a way we could mitigate that. Uh, that's great. And presumably, um, you know, if you did uh, extend the Defense Production Act uh, to this area, it could also have an impact on uh, prices abroad and our ability to persuade other countries to stay away from Huawei and ZTE while they're considering their 5G options. True. Yeah. So let's talk about your other recommendations. Are there other steps the U.S. government can be taking to win this race? Are all of our agencies and departments doing everything everything they can uh, to to win this battle to keep Huawei and ZTE out of European markets and, frankly, out of our market? So, I mean, I think they, they have done a lot. I do lay out a, a handful more. The um, uh, president had issued an executive order um, that essentially would very likely lead to a threat determination that Huawei and ZTE are formally a national security threat to the United States and, and therefore would ban 
their imports into the U.S. Now, we've discussed the fact that they're essentially already banned, and while they're not even in the network, so you don't really need a ban, but it sends a, a very unequivocal message that the U.S., the United States government, that still to this day, the, the biggest economy, most powerful country on earth, says no one should do business with these companies and they're a threat. So I think that could have an impact. So um, executing on that executive order and making sure that message is sent um, could have an impact. Because what we see with this debate, with anything with China, of course, is there's always a push and a pull between our economic relationship with China. Um, we have the coronavirus complication now. We have, of course, we're in the thralls of a presidential election year. So just making sure we kind of keep the, the foot on the gas on, on some of these types of measures the administration is already moving on, but that we actually see through to the end of the day. Yeah, one of the things I, I, I highlight is providing research and development assistance for Huawei ZTE competitors. Because one of the things we see around the world is um, the Chinese show up with a very tempting offer. One, one thing they like to do is they'll show up in a country and say, we'll build your telecommunications infrastructure um, using, using Huawei and you won't have to make a payment for three years. And if you go with us, we will build your port for no charge for 30 years, you know, if you miss a payment, we own the port. But um, other than that, they, they'll package all of these things together um, and make it a, a very attractive offer in a way that that their competitors are not able to do, um, particularly on this this payment side. So, so um, you know, using the um, Export Import Bank, the Development Finance Corporation uh, that uh, new, was newly created. Uh, by the Congress, um, you know, using all those tools in this, in a similar way, you know, I happen to believe we don't need to be dollar for dollar with the Chinese. I think there is a, um, I think folks want to pick Team USA, uh, Team West. They're inclined to not always maybe trust the Chinese motivations, uh, particularly nowadays, but we got to be in the ballgame. It can't be, you know, a 20, 30, 40, 50% differential on, on price or terms. It's got to be somewhere close. So, Andy, the, uh, the Trump administration's taken a pretty tough line on China generally, but not an entirely tough line. And there was a celebrated case about a year and a half or two years ago when uh, ZTE in particular uh, came under um, uh, certain punishments and sanctions for its dealings with Iran outside of U.S. law. And we essentially had a death penalty pointed at ZTE and the Trump administration decided, the president decided to let them off the hook, presumably in the context of looking for a broader trade deal between Washington and Beijing. So how much of how much are you seeing as impact uh, as an impact on these important national security concerns, our overall trading relationship with China and the president wanting to get a uh, what he can call a very good deal with our biggest trading partner. No question. And that's why I, I think you've seen these, some of these fits and starts though. I do think any objective observer though, uh, you know, we all can get frustrated at times with a particular action. The ZTE example is a good one on whole. This administration has been so much tougher on, on China, on the Chinese government from our military modernization to contesting them in space when they're have militarized space. Um, and we've recognized that now to, uh, um, calling out their actions in Shenzhen to, um, 
you know, on down the line, human rights violations to their trading. I mean, they've been ripping us off for 30 years. We, we're both from the Midwest. It's sort of in our DNA that we think we've had a raw deal for from China for a long time. Um, and so I think it is hard to overstate that the importance of that position. Now, that said, absolutely, the president clearly believes uh, the most important uh, factor to his own reelection, his own legacy is, is the state of the U.S. economy. And uh, China is clearly, you know, one of our uh, most important trading partners. So always balancing that. And one of the interesting things I think you see is tough actions like like throwing the book at, at Huawei are, are kind of put on ice until until either the Chinese walk away from some deal or escalate things themselves. And then and then I think these hawks throughout the administration, a lot of them have spent their whole careers on China. I think of, of people like Peter Navarro and Matt Pottinger at the National Security Council. Pompeo has, has historically been very tough on China. Wilbur Ross for 30 years has been tough on China. Donald Trump himself for 30 years has been tough on China. And you see, you know, when there's a breakthrough on, on an impasse or the administration just gets fed up, they'll, they'll pull the trigger on some of these very aggressive uh, actions that, that frankly no Democratic or Republican administration had been willing to uh, follow through on uh, in previous decades. All right. Uh, so one last question. We've seen reports that uh, some British people are attacking 5G towers in the UK. What's up with that? Well, it's good to, to know folks with tinfoil hats are, are in every country. So as a former British colony, perhaps some of our, our more interesting, colorful folks get their ideas from, from them. I mean, there is this conspiracy theory, actually, interestingly enough, uh, peddled by Russian intelligence, because they're nowhere near 5G and they're not particularly good on this topic, but um, they're fanning the flames on these small cell towers, you know, are going to make everybody, you know, die or go crazy or both or something. So there is some of that undercurrent, um, which of course has no scientific proof, but um, yeah, interesting. There's, there's, there's kooks everywhere, Les. All right, Andy, thanks very much. That is a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver, as always, for his terrific direction and production. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.